Psalm 73. Psalm 73. As we prepare to read the word, just by way of reminder and encouragement to each of us when we think about the Reformation, um, you know, it's easy for us to look back and see what happened and kind of parade the courage of those men and women in the past. But we need a Reformation today. We need uh, men and women who are unashamed of God's word, who, who remind the leaders over us that they are under the leadership of Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings. And we need to live that life exemplified in every area of our own lives, that Jesus is king over us, that he rules over us, and that his word is our final authority. And we live in light of the realities in the word of God. And so we need a daily reformation in our own lives, in our nation, and across the world. And so let us appreciate what the Lord did in the past and pray that he do it again and again and again so that the name of Christ would be exalted. Well, this morning we're looking at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. This is known as a Psalm of Asaph. We'll start at verse 1, go down to the end of the chapter in verse 28. Psalm 73. The word of God reads as followed. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they lawfully they threaten oppression. They set them they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them ruin. You make them fall to ruin. They, how, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Father, we come to you this morning, giving you praise, and ask God that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would encourage your people, and we pray, Lord, for those that do not know you, we pray that this would be the day of salvation, and that the name of Christ would be exalted in their turning from sin and trusting in Christ. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 73, what happens when the child of God takes their eyes off the promises of God and allows their vision to be skewed by the temporal rather than the eternal? What happens is that they begin to believe the lies presented to them by the world, the flesh and the devil, and they fail to lay hold on the fullness that they have in Christ. It was One writer said this, as he that fears God fears nothing else, so he that sees God sees nothing else. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Psalm 73. Asaph, the writer of this psalm, was a musician in the time of David. Asaph composed songs that we have here in the Psalms. This was the hymnal of the saints in the Old Covenant. Uh, And we would do well to sing these songs ourselves, both congregationally and personally in our homes and in our time of worship. These words that God has inspired the writers to write give us a reminder of their cries and desperate, uh, desperate prayers to God as they sing for their need for God in time of hardship and trial and even rejoicing and remembering the good works of God throughout history. Well, Asaph was a man in this psalm who was struggling with his faith. Anybody can relate to that? Struggling in your faith, having this internal battle with your faith. And rather than see God, Asaph was blinded by envy of the wicked due to their apparent prosperity. And so in this psalm, we're going to read about the testimony of a man of God who struggled in his faith. But in the end, He remembered the promises of God and was reminded of the sweetness of God. He was invigorated in his faith. And the reality is this, as we look at this psalm, God is good. That's the overall point that I believe Asaph is making, which I will make my case for here in a moment, that God is good. And that God is good to his people in spite of what we see and in spite of how we feel. He is unchanging in his nature, and he will keep his word to the righteous and to the wicked. And so let us look at our text this morning, starting at verse 1. God is good. And what better way to start a song by uttering those words? Verse 1. Truly, or indeed, God is good to Israel. Now, if you wanted to meditate on this text, you would read the first few verses and say, Truly, God, truly God. And you repeat that and you think about that and what that means. And then you say, good, or God is 
truly God is. What is God? Well, he is. He's self-existing. He always is, he always was, and he always will be. But in his nature, he is good. And so we reflect on that and we think on that. And that supersedes beyond what we feel or what we see in the moment because he's the unchanging one. And so God is good. Now, who is God good to? God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so his goodness is displayed to his people. And the second half of this verse says, to those who have a pure heart. Who are those who can ascend the mountain of God? No one in their own right. But God is good to his people. He has covenanted himself to us. He has revealed himself to us. He has embraced us to himself through Jesus Christ. And so now we have access to God. And before God, we are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's work, not on the basis of our own works. And so we can come to God. We are seen as those who have pure hearts because we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. So those who have trusted in God in the Bible are those who believe in God, those who trust in the one and only true God. Remember, Nineveh had no clue who Yahweh was until the preacher came and preached and revealed to them the nature and the character of God. And once they repented, they believed upon the Lord. They believed and turned from their sin and trusted in God. Now they are people who are in covenant with God. They have relationship with God. They have access to God. But the nations did not have that. This was a special kind of love that God set aside for the children of Israel. And it was not because of anything good that they had done. It wasn't because they were strong or mighty like other nations. They were, they were the least of the nations. And yet God set his love on them. And today we see that if you are in Christ Jesus, that that is a reality in your life today as well. That it isn't because you are strong or mighty or wise It isn't because you are the most innovative or the greatest looking or the tallest or the meekest. It is because God is good and God is good to his people. And so the psalmist sings this song starting with these words. The God of all creation has revealed himself to his people and has revealed himself to us that he is good. He makes promises to his people that he perfectly keeps. He provides a sacrifice in himself in the person of Jesus Christ that is pleasing to the Father. And he will keep his covenant with those of his own because he is good to his people. And this is how the psalmist starts the song. Hallelujah, God is good. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Elsewhere, the psalmist says in Psalm 84, 11 and 12, For the Lord is for, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So this morning, in spite of what you see, in spite of how you feel, you are blessed because God is good. Thank you. That's worthy of an amen. In spite of what you see, in spite of how you feel, God is good and you are blessed. And so in his goodness, God is the one who is morally pure. 
In himself, Asaph was not pure in heart. However, because his faith was in Yahweh, the one and only true God, he was accounted as righteous before God. And so in his goodness, God is morally pure. God is not moved by externals like men are. God is not swayed by people's stuff or material possession like we are. The goodness of God is a pillar to us. And it ought to be a constant reminder that we go back to. He is a firm foundation. A foundation firm in our minds and our hearts ought to go back continually to the goodness of God. These are some of the few words we should utter every morning when we wake up. You know why? Because when you wake up, as you get older, your back hurts and your feet hurt and you may be a little overweight or your children may have not given you enough sleep. And the point is, is that there are so many circumstances that would cause your soul to believe opposite of what God has said about himself. And so by faith, the first things we do is say, God is good. And then we roll out of the bed and we remind ourselves that all throughout the day, God is good. And this is the overall lesson that Asaph learned after his time of weak faith. Notice Asaph's confession. God is good, but verses two and following, man is not good. Look at verses two through 15. Man is not good. Verses two and three, Asaph gives his confession. He says, but as for me, my foot or my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So notice the comparison. This is who God is. This is who I am. God is good. He is pure. He is holy. He is immovable. He is morally pure. But as for me, I am weak. He says, I am so weak that my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And later in this psalm, we're going to see Asaph's words of almost slipping compared to the wicked who slip. But here we see Asaph says, I almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And this is something we don't like to talk about in the church. And we barely like to talk about it amongst ourselves as believers, is that we are weak and needy and dependent and we sin. And we need God. We need to confess our sin to the Lord and to those whom we sin against. And so the sooner we stop acting like we've got it all together, the sooner we can be reminded of the graces that God has provided in himself in the gospel. And so Asaph sings this song to God and he says, God, my feet had almost slipped. Asaph acknowledges his sin. He says, I am weak. I am not like you, God. You are good. In verse three, what was his sin? His sin was that he was envious of the arrogant. And why? Because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was jealous of the wicked because of the possessions that they had. And he was jealous. He was keeping his eyes on men and away from God. Isn't that something that we all are prone to do? And say, God, if I had a better job like so-and-so, if my children were better off like so-and-so, and we always compare ourselves with someone else, and we're, we're jealous and envious, but more specific, Asaph is saying that he's jealous and envious of the wicked 
because of the stuff they have, because of the possessions that they have. And Asaph's vision was distorted, brothers and sisters. He was looking with eyes of flesh and not eyes of faith. He was looking at the possessions of the wicked. And anytime we believe a lie concerning those who are outside of Christ and we think we equate the things that they have as being blessed, then we are mistaken. We are mistaken. So Asaph's sin is that he's weak and that he's envious and jealous of the wicked. And the wicked are not good, Asaph acknowledges. Verses 3 and following, he says, They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he goes on all the way to verse 12. He says the wicked, verse 12, are at ease. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 5, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So these people are wicked. They're vile. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. The wicked are not good. Asaph is right. The wicked are not good. They are evil before the Lord. And he makes several observations about this point. Verse 4, if you would, they have no pain until death. And Asaph's evidence is that their bodies are fat and sleek. Right? And think about, um, this is interesting, uh, the, the fat and sleek. They're, they're fattened, but what's the fattening for? It's the fattening for a day of judgment. Right? So, so he's comparing them as to a sacrifice. They're, they're fat and they're sleek. And they have no pain until, until death. Verse 5, they don't have troubles like others. In his evidence, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, is Asaph's assessment of the wicked true? Partially, right? It is true that the wicked have no pain. Or is it true that the wicked have no pain until death? Is it true that the wicked have no trouble like others do? No, that's not true. And, and, and when, we, when we are not thinking clearly because of our sin, and when our eyes are off of God, we start to say silly things, sinful things. And we are tempted to believe a lie. The reality is, is that we live in a fallen world. And everyone born in Adam will have trouble in this life. Adam's sin has negatively affected mankind as a whole, not just those who are in Christ. And however, when our vision is skewed, we are often not thinking clearly, at which point we are more likely to believe the lies rather than the truth. We need to preach the truth to our souls. Now, there is no evidence in the text that Asaph was talking to God about his struggles during this time. Verse 1 is, is the conclusion. Asaph is looking back and he's saying, God is good. Verses 2 and following, he's recalling how he was in this state of envy and jealousy of the wicked. And during this season, he just recalls himself keeping his eyes on the wicked, constantly going back to what they have and what they're not going through, almost having a pity party. I don't know if you can relate to that kind of 
spiritual struggle and challenge, but I sure can. And so Asaph is complaining. And there's no evidence here in our text that Asaph is actually talking to God during his time of struggle. Instead, he was burning with envy and all he could see was the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph makes seven conclusions about the wicked. Look at verse six. He says that they're prideful. He says they wear pride in their necklace or, they, or therefore pride is their necklace. The book of Psalms is giving us a, a poetic image of the way they wear their pride, right? They, they boast around town with pride in their hearts and in their lives, and they strut in the community like a person would with an expensive and valuable necklace around their neck. This is how arrogant and prideful the wicked are. In verse six, he says that they're violent, He says, violence covers them as a garment. In other words, everything they do is covered with violence. And it isn't just killing someone. It's their speech. It's their gossip. It's their slander. They kill people. They hate people because they hate God. And this is what he sees. Verse 7, he says their covetousness. They, They not only have a lot of stuff, but they want more stuff. Ironically enough, this is the sin that David was guilty of when he was coveting another man's wife and he had him killed. And so we see that these wicked people are prideful and violent and covetous. Verse four, excuse me, verse eight, they're scoffers. They they mock God. They make fun of the, the promises of God. They scoff and speak with malice. There's a, there's a sort of, of vitriol and anger and malice and anger toward God and toward man. And so they scoff. Second Peter uses the same terminology with regards to false teachers in his day. Is that they scoff. They say, oh, oh, when is Christ going to return? You've been talking about this and people have been talking about this forever. And it hasn't come yet. It hasn't happened And so this scoffing and mocking and railing against God and his people. Verse 9, they're God-haters. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth, similar to those in Romans 1, where they not only enjoy their sin, but they encourage others to sin. These are the wicked. And Asaph is seeing all of this and he's burning inside. God, you are good. I acknowledge that. This is the lesson that he learned afterwards. And yet, God, in your goodness, righteously judged the wicked. And so we see in verse 10, they lead others astray. He says, and find no fault in them. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Verse 11, they are mockers of God. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And so Asaph concludes in verse 12 that these are the wicked. They are always at ease. They increase in riches. But this is the problem with Asaph's conclusion. He's not wrong about the nature of the wicked. It is true. You read passages like this and you go to Romans chapter 3 and you see the depravity of man. He is completely depraved. He isn't as sinful as he can be 
but he's completely sinful in all of his being. His minds are far, his, his mind is far from God, his thoughts are far from God, his actions are far from God. And even when he's worshiping God, he's not worshiping him as God ought to be worshiped. He creates his own God in his heart. And so this is true about mankind. This is how God has revealed himself through the word concerning sinful man, those who are in Adam. The problem with Asaph's conclusion, though, is that his conclusions come from a place of envy and jealousy. And so Asaph's envy and his sin is causing him not to see through eyes of faith. His vision is skewed. He is looking at the outward blessings of the wicked. And as a result, he is not seeing God rightly. If God is good, how can he allow the wicked to go on unpunished? If God is good, how could he allow the righteous to go through suffering and hardship in this life? Brothers and sisters, there is a mystery in this. We don't know why we go through suffering or what God is doing in our times of suffering. We don't know. But we do know, as the scriptures reveal to us, that God is doing a work in us, that he's not forsaken us, that his love has not waned for us, that he embraces us in his beloved, in his son, and he treats us as sons and daughters, that we are loved by God. And so these types of questions that we ask when we are, or these are the types of questions that we ask God when we are swayed by what we see rather than on what God has said. You have to repeat the promises of God to your mind. I've mentioned this in the past, is that there's nothing wrong with talking to yourself. The problem is, is when you answer yourself. <laughs> we need to talk to ourselves, right? God, you said. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, right here. Right here in Psalm 73, you said, and I'm holding on to this first God. And the devil says, you fool. And the flesh says, you idiot. And the world says, whatever, it's never going to happen. And you keep your finger on the text and you repeat what God said by faith and you believe it. And that is the life of a Christian. There was a time in all this battling in the mind and of the soul and this anguish that Asaph had, Asaph had when God revealed himself to Asaph. It's like the light switch came on. He was, he was pitying in darkness. He was overwhelmed by the blessings of the wicked and the prosperity of the wicked. He was struggling in his faith and angry and envious. But then we see a change of events. Verses 16 and following. This change of events is God's revelation, or a better word is illumination. God is revealing, he's uncovering something for Asaph to see. Don't you love when God does that? Right? And, and this is a blessing, this is a gift that God gives us, and he recognizes that we are weak, that we don't deserve anything from God, that we, we are called to live a life of faith and whether or not God shows us what he's doing in our lives or the end or the purpose of the matter, we ought to be people of faith and trust him in spite of what we see and in spite of how we feel. But here God is so gracious to his people. In verses 16 and following, 
we see another word here, but again, this separation, this reminder, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I was overwhelmed by this reality. I was struggling in my soul, darkness. I couldn't talk to anyone. I don't know how many people he could speak to about this. I mean, he's the songwriter. If anyone's got to have it together, it's got to be the songwriter. These are the songs that God is inspiring through this man that the people of God are singing back to God. And so Asaph, you can't afford to be having these internal tensions. But the reality is, is that he did. And God inspired this moment and our text. And so we see in verse 17, he comes to this illumination. God reveals this to him. And what is it? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. <coughs> Here, Asaph sees the promises of God revealed to his soul. Asaph was having this internal battle within himself and there was no one for him to turn to. But as soon as he went into the sanctuary of God, the fate of the wicked finally clicked. The promises of God and his word come rushing back into his soul. Asaph was blinded by his sin of envy, but the Lord was faithful to show himself to Asaph. Verse 16 and 17, the sanctuary of God. It was in the sanctuary of God. He says, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, the place where God resides, the place where God's people have access to is the place where Asaph found peace of mind. The sanctuary of God represented the place where God's promises for his covenant people were applied. Sacrifices were made in the sanctuary of God and those sacrifices were made on behalf of their sin and God would receive those sacrifices as acceptable. And they were singing songs to God and reflecting back on the goodness of God. And it was in this place that Asaph remembered the wicked don't have access to God. The wicked do not have an entry point to God apart from Christ. God's judgment on the wicked is seen here in verses 18 and following by Asaph. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You can think about Asaph recalling these Glorious promises of God. Think about this, brothers and sisters. We do not have the same end and fate of the wicked. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who have a pure heart. When this envy rises up within us and we compare ourselves with others, we remember the end of the matter, that God is for us and not against us, that God loves us, that he'll never forsake us for his own glory. And so we see that Asaph comes to this conclusion. He says, the wicked are not blessed. Asaph remembered that there is a curse and not a blessing over the wicked. He says, their feet are on slippery ground. And God is the one who makes them stumble. I don't act like I have it all understood. But that's what the text says, brothers and sisters. 
God is not for the wicked. He is against them. And this is an awe to us because we were among the wicked. And God set his love upon us in Christ, as Ephesians says, in eternity past. And it was not because of anything we did, but it was simply by his grace alone. And so the psalmist says that God is the one, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. Remember in verse Chapter, uh, verse two of chapter of the same chapter, verse two, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Well, here in verse 18, he says, God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, they, how, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So God is showing them grace in that their destruction has not come upon them yet. But in a moment, their destruction will come upon them. They think they're living in luxury. They think that they've got it all together. They wear their pride around their neck as a necklace. And yet in a moment, they will know that they are not autonomous, that they are not their own God, that they have to give an account before the God of all creation. And Asaph sings this song as a praise to God because of God's love for the righteous. Their lives are not really blessed. Their lives are not a reality because as soon as God's judgment comes upon them, their end will be sudden. The eternal God has set aside eternal judgment for those who reject him. And this is a reality. God is not rejoicing at the death of the wicked, but God is glorified. His justice is satisfied with the judgments of the wicked. He said, "When how could you say that? God has revealed himself in that way. God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, but God's justice is glorified in the judgments of the wicked. And brothers and sisters, we have evaded that because of Christ and Christ alone. And so the psalmist says in verse 23, you hold me fast. You hold me fast. Fast. Actually, go back, verse 21 and 22. He's reflecting on the pastor. He said, I was not thinking clearly, O Lord. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and arrogant, uh, or excuse me, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Right? So, so when God reveals himself, Asaph almost shuts his mouth. I wasn't thinking clearly, God. I wasn't seeing you rightly, God. I was ignorant. I was brutish. Because Asaph's complaint toward the wicked in reality is really a complaint toward God. And so Asaph didn't have a wicked people problem. He had a heart problem in his relationship to God. And God humbled him and reminded him, son, don't always believe what you see. Live by faith, 
on the promises that I have given you in the word of God. And what are the promises right here, brothers and sisters, verses 23 and following? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. In other words, you are my strength. You guide me. You will receive me after my death. God is for us. And he says, you guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. So, so everything, all that God is, believers have access to his person. You think about that. And that should cause us to be still, as the psalmist says, and know that he is God. We think we have it figured out when we're going through things. We think we know what God is doing, but what we really need is the counsel of God. We need the wisdom of God. We need to shut our mouths and humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you are good. And I believe you and I trust you. Help me, Lord. And so the psalmist recognizes that now and, for, oh, and, and forever he's been guided by God and he needs his counsel. And afterwards, after his death, he is going to be with the Lord in glory. And he concludes, verse 25, with praise. We have a song that takes this verse. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's a question, brothers and sisters. Think about it. All the things, all the possessions that a person has, they're lacking one thing. And Jesus told the rich young ruler, go and sell it all and you can have eternal life. And he walked away very sorrowful. But brothers and sisters, we have everything. Though we have nothing in this life, we have everything in Christ. We have God on our side. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And just think about that, brothers and sisters. And maybe today your heart has waned away from that reality. Maybe you can't say these truths with a pure conscience. Maybe you don't believe them. And I pray that we remind ourselves of these great truths. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So what if people have more stuff than me? So what if the things that I value are taken from me? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's our prayer and our cry. And so this morning, does your heart desire God and his ways and his will? Can we sing this song with a pure conscience? Whom have I in heaven but you? You are my all in all, O Lord. The psalmist goes on, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. The psalmist even here acknowledges that my flesh and my heart may fail. It will fail. But it isn't even dependent on me. God's goodness transcends whether or not I'm doing well today. 
Brothers and sisters, even if you're not feeling good today, even if your soul is not feeling well today, it is well with your soul because it has been stamped in eternity past, actualized in real life with the death of Christ, with the sending of his Holy Spirit, with the preaching of the gospel going forward, with you responding by faith to that in Jesus Christ. And now you have the Spirit of God as a deposit until the return of Christ. You and I are blessed in Christ. And that is the promise we hold on to. So even though my heart may fail, and even though my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that is the song of praise we bring to the Lord. In Asaph's last words, he sees verses 27 and 28, the fate of the wicked and the fate of the righteous. Verse 27, he says, For behold, look, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Brothers and sisters, this is so important for us to remember. The wicked are going to kill themselves off. And, and, and I mean that literally. Think about the culture that we live in. It is a culture of death. It is a culture that is anti-God. How long can that sustain itself? Not long. The fate of the wicked is death. It is end. It comes to an end. Verse 28, the, but the fate of the righteous. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. He is my hiding place that I may tell of all your works. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, tell of the works of God. Rejoice in God. You think about the people throughout church history and maybe those you know in your own life who go through immense suffering, internal battles, and yet they testify to the goodness of God. In spite of what we see and in spite of how we feel, God is good to his people. He is unchanging in his nature and he will keep his word to the righteous and to the wicked. In Asaph's confession, we are reminded that it is impossible for a person to see the eternal when their eyes are fixed on the temporal. And so the first thing we must do is repent. God, forgive us for not seeing as you are called us to see God. Forgive us for, for exalting what we see with our sinful eyes above what you have spoken in your inspired word. And by faith, we need to look to Christ and with eyes of faith, believe that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And by faith, we, we look, and by faith, we look away from the possessions of others and believe what God has said about our possession in him. And our position in him. And so when we're going through seasons of darkness and discouragement because of the prosperity of the wicked, please consider the following. Some application points. Number one, consider singing this song to God. Like literally, sing the song to God. Get yourself a nice uh, psalmody book and, and, and listen to the melodies online and sing these songs to God. Whom have I in heaven besides you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. So consider singing this song to God. Consider reading and praying this psalm to God. Verse by verse, reading it and praying it to God. 
and consider practical ways in which you can apply this text to your life. It was in March of 1788. Songwriter Charles Wesley, while he's laying in his deathbed, reflected on this psalm, Psalm 73. And he was specifically looking at verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As he meditated on these words from Asaph, Charles Wesley dictated the following words to his wife, which are known as some of his last words. And it was this. In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, what should we do when we are weak in our faith? How should we overcome our times of darkness and doubt? By faith, we look away from the charms of this world and we look to Christ, who is the exemplification of beauty and glory. And he far outweighs the possessions of the wicked. For our end is glory, and unless they repent, their end is destruction. Let us close in a word of prayer. Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for this time of struggle in the life of Asaph that you used to move him to write your inspired word. This morning, God, we confess that you are our all in all. Lord, minister to your people where they are and help us to live lives of faith. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.